us pray. Gracious Lord, we ask that you would teach us more of your truth, your ways, that you would help us to know, receive, and share more of your love in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to start this morning with, with a confession. One of the greatest places on earth to me is Disney World. When I was a kid, the first time we went there, I remember it so vividly. How we drove, we drove from Texas over there, how much excitement, how much anticipation, how much joy there was. And then later as a parent, when I took my kids there, the same thing. It was just like, they could not wait. I've got such fantastic pictures of them with some of the characters there. And then the last time we were there, I hung out at the gate for just a minute, just for to look back and to watch all the kids coming in. And there was so, there's just so much joy in that place, in that moment. And I only wish so badly that I could bottle that. So that like on a day that's a little gray, you can kind of sprinkle some of the joy coming in that gate there. It's fantastic. And today what I want to talk about after we go through some hard stuff, is a little bit about coming back to the joy and place of a child in that way. We're going to go there. But uh, I want to first start out by looking at our gospel passage today, the whole thing, including the hard bits before we talk about Jesus and the kids coming to him. And uh, along with that, we're mixing this up with stewardship and giftedness and different things. So there'll be some of that put in here as well. So that's kind of where we're headed today. And I want to tell you that uh, before we get to sort of talking about the joy part with the kids, I want to go to the hard topic about talking about divorce for a second. And um, I don't often, I don't really don't like preachers who talk about how they wrote their sermons. Like I did this and this, this, but I will tell you draft one did not have this in it. And I was talking to one of my priest friends who we were, we were comparing notes about preaching on this passage who called me a wimp. For not, for not talking about divorce today in the, in the gospel lesson that we had. And that was a good challenge for me. So I'm going to talk about it for a minute and uh, for just a little bit, I should say, and, and kind of go there for a second. And um, it's one of these things where we get, we get in context first what's going on, that Jesus is, um, he's headed south. He's left Galilee. He's headed south. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows this is the end game. This is going to be the final, final tour, and this is headed towards the cross. And now we find ourselves in Judea, and we get that the Pharisees are encountering him, and they want to keep testing him and working with him and trying to push him to the different limits. And so we get that in a number of different ways with what they do with that. And today they approach him saying, starting out, you know, what do you think about divorce and what Moses said and all this kind of stuff? And it's a test. We're trying to figure out, are they testing whether he's orthodox? Are they trying to figure out what he's going to say on this? But people like William Barclay, the great um, biblical commentary, says, like, well, maybe he's, he, he's really getting tested about one of the issues that's really a hot, burning issue of the day. Because the, the rabbis of the day are having these huge debates about what's to be made of divorce and what are the terms and how, to, how does it all work. And he says that the whole crux of the debate that's taking place goes to, to what's happening with this one passage from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 24.1, um, which I'm going to read to you, but um, they all, it's all going to come down to one word that's in, in that passage. Um, Deuteronomy 24.1, it says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and it goes on from there, that's the passage that they're going to unpack. And the word that's really going to unpack is that word indecent. But 
there's a whole sermon probably about why this is only about men divorcing women. And women could divorce at the time, but it's rare. And at the end of the day, the only person that could write a certificate of divorce was a man. So even when a, there were conditions where a woman was going to be allowed to divorce, she didn't just get it. The man had to write it out. And if he eventually didn't do it, they would force him to do it. That's kind of how that went. But the, the whole turn on this passage from Deuteronomy 24.1 is this passage of what's, what's indecent. What does that mean? And how do we unpack what that term is? And there were, there were two different camps of rabbis at the time Jesus is engaging this issue. Um, there's one group of rabbis that are known as the um, school of Shammai. These are rabbis that interpret this passage strictly. Like they see in it, that the only thing that's indecent is immorality, is infidelity. That's it. That's the only grounds that there is. There's this other group, though, and this is where the buzz and the controversy and the discussion's going, and this is where the masses are tending to start to go. It's this other group called the School of Hillel. And these rabbis interpret this passage as broadly as they possibly can interpret it. And um, they eventually get to where they develop this new kind of divorce that it's called an any-cause any divorce. And I want to uh, read a couple of different passages. One of the guys that's an expert in this is a, a guy that's a research fellow at Cambridge who studies all the writings of the rabbis, but he's also a New Testament scholar. And so he, he mixes these two things together and how he writes. And this is what he says about the controversy. He says, the any-cause divorce was invented from a single word in Deuteronomy 24.1. Moses allowed divorce for a cause of immorality, or more literally, a thing of nakedness. Most Jews recognized this unusual phrase was talking about adultery, but the Hillitite rabbis wondered why Moses had added the word thing or cause when he only needed to use the word immorality. They decided this extra word implied another ground for divorce. Divorce for a, a cause. They argue, and they argued eventually that the cause is anything, including a burnt mill or wrinkles where they weren't there when you married the wife. Could be a cause. The text they said taught that divorce was allowed both for adul adultery and for any cause. And Jesus just soundly puts that, throws that out and says, no way is that right. God's design, God's plan is that marriage is meant to be for life. And again, I didn't say the scholar's name, but his name is Dr. David Instone Brewer. He continues by saying this, when Jesus answered with a resounding no, he wasn't condemning divorce for any reason, but rather the newly invented any cause divorce. Jesus agreed firmly with this first group that the phrase didn't mean divorce was allowable for immor immorality and for any cause, but the Deuteronomy 24 referred to the no type of divorce except immorality. That's what Jesus is dealing with in all of this. And, and he's saying that um, that new thing that's developed, this any cost thing is, is trash. Like get rid of that. There are people who come back now who say, well, he's putting that down. It's not that he's trying to say that there's never a, a reason. And so like this professor from Cambridge goes on to say, that no, I mean, like Jesus does later say it's, it's immorality. Paul's later is going to say, if you're married to a non-believer who leaves, there's other pa another passage in the Old Testament that people say that goes into a couple other reasons. So that there are some things like, for example, for abuse are different things that happen that way. But 
the one thing I would say in all this, and um, the couple things, one is this is for sure a whole sermon, which I'm not doing. And I would be happy to, I'm always trying to get y'all to write on this communication cards. If you guys are interested in a whole sermon on that, I'd love to get some feedback on that because we'll do it. But I'd love to get some feedback on that about what you do. But I also want to just say, this is a really complex issue. A lot of people have been hurt by this. And a lot of people don't want to talk about this. I didn't want to talk about it. I've been hurt by it. The, the whole notion that, this, that it's complicated and it's hurtful and it's painful. And as sort of as a final little um, word on this and, and a word about the complexity of it, I like the way that um, the Episcopal Diocese of Dallas, we have this thing called the customary, which is like a book that tells the priests what our procedures are and how we think. And you may not know this, but somebody who's been divorced, who's going to get remarried, has to get the approval of the bishop. You're not just allowed to go do it and be in the right place in the church. And the customary, these instructions from the bishop, when he starts this discussion about how we're going to handle this whole issue, this is what the customary says. And I like the way it paints the complexity of this. This is what it says. It says, the remarriage of divorced persons in the church poses a difficult dilemma. On the one hand, marriage is viewed by the church as a sacrament, a solemn undertaking blessed by God and indissoluble. On the other hand, Divorce is a reality that grows out of our fallen condition as human beings and all too easily reinforced as an option in our society. How we may uphold the sanctity of marriage and at the same time minister the redeeming, reconciling love of God to those who've endured the pain of divorce is the question that confronts us as the church. And then it goes on to talk about how things are going to work and what the procedures are from there. I said before that uh, that's a whole sermon, if not a whole sermon series. And I'd love to get your input back on that. Um, it, it's a complicated um, topic, but there you go, Steve. I took it on. So my, I'm not a wimp. <laughs> I want to switch. It's a bit abrupt. I don't know when, when Andrew was reading this, if you got how abrupt it was, because he's talking about divorce, divorce, divorce. And then all of a sudden he starts talking about the kids. And so I'm going to do the same thing. You know, we're, we're switching just like that. But we have this, and I actually think they may be related because I think there's a bit of a juxtaposition of the two. Because on the one hand, there's this rabbi group that's getting so, um, like, religious lawyers playing games with one word in Deuteronomy 24.1, doing all this and complicated and all the stuff they're doing. And now the writer is going to tell you the story about the children and where they are. So maybe it's meant to be this comparison. Like that's the people playing games. And let's talk about what real faith, trust, joy, whatever it is, is going to be like this. But we have this situation where Jesus is there and the people are starting to bring him the children. The children are coming to him and how that situation is going to unfold. And I think part of this is to just pause for a second and think and picture this image in your mind of Jesus wherever he is. And I mean, if you've had little children and the, and the parents are saying, you go, you know, go see him or do whatever, but the children are coming to him. And I, I always read in that passage, it's not there, but I always read into that, that Jesus must have been a, must have been a fun person. Like I, I imagine that at this point he's smiling and he's playful and, it, and like, if you've ever been to a place where there's that one person that kids gravitate to, they want to be around them, it's, that's the way Jesus is at this moment. Like, I mean, th there's a tradition to getting the, the senior prophet to give a blessing, but they're, they're going to him. He's putting him on their lap. You know, there's all this stuff. I just imagine he's smiling. He's playful. He's joyful. He's inviting them. They're having this great time. And the disciples have a different take on it at this point. And I think it's interesting to pause in and just think about the kids for a minute. 
Because the kids are, in this society, they're meant to be seen, not heard. They have no power. Um, even physically, they're like in a different place than we would think about today because the mortality of kids at this time is really bad. Like if you go to like some of the more impoverished places in the world at the time this is taking place, like Egypt, there are references that would lead us to believe that the mortality rate among children up to the age 12 is like 50%. So people maybe are holding that whole situation with the children differently. And, but so the disciples are in this position where like, okay, this is, we have a senior prophet here. We have somebody that is maybe the Messiah or whatever it is. Let's maximize this time. Let's only let powerful people, let's let the big senior leaders come and do all this and meet with them. And you let's maximize this time. Let's not let the little, little people come. And let's not certainly not let the children have no power come to him. They're the gatekeepers who are holding on to this. And Jesus sees this taking place at some point. It's like, okay, wait, wait, wait. You've got this wrong. Let the children come to me. I, they don't have any power. Let them come to me anyway. I love these ones. This is, and Jesus is always like this. I think this is one of those moments where you pause for a minute, taking in this scene about how the disciples are being the gatekeepers, keeping the kids away because they don't have power and all this stuff. And Jesus is like, you got this wrong, bring them. I want to bless them. I want to, I want to put them on my lap. I want to hug them. I want to laugh with them. I want to, I want to participate in their joy and all this. It's not about this usual power structure of the world. And this is one of those moments for us, those, any of us who've ever felt on the outside, this is one of those passages where, again, you celebrate that Jesus goes to the margins. He goes to the outside and he welcomes everybody in. It's not about your power. It's not about how much you give. It's not about what you can do. It's not all that stuff. It's not about that. It's that he loves you and he welcomes you and he wants you. And Jesus, it's more than that because Jesus oftentimes is identifying with those out on the margins. He's oftentimes the one who's with the downtrodden. And for those of us in the Episcopal church, I think we're an affluent church. Let's own it. We're in a particular affluent church here. And maybe sometimes that makes us uncomfortable. I want to read a, a little bit of an article that I came across recently that has some Episcopal um, clergy talking about this. But there was this um, Canadian artist, a sculptor, a sculptor who um, engaged in some provocative sculptures that are being put all around the world in different places. This guy's from Canada and his name is Tim Timothy Schmaltz. And the, he was using the same bronze cast um, sculpture, life-size, being put in all these places around the world. And when you saw it, it was like, if you've been to these places where they have the bronze figure that's adult size playing chess or doing whatever, doing something, or, you know, kids playing in the front yard, or even like the one we have at the back, back of the main church, the big church. Um, he did one of these, but it, it's a homeless person who's on a bench and his face and his hands and everything are covered with a blanket. And so he's out on this bench. But when you see his feet, which are out, um, you can see the gaping wounds of one who's been crucified. And he's sitting there and the confrontation of that. But then it's interesting to see how people react to this. And so I'm reading part of this article. When this sculpture was installed in front of St. Albans Episcopal Church in the middle of an upscale neighborhood in Davidson, North Carolina, one woman called the police. Another wrote a letter of complaint to the editor of a local newspaper. Many felt that it was an insult to the Son of God. 
And, um, some churches have even refused to put it out front. The Reverend David Buck of St. Albans Episcopal feels that the sculpture gives authenticity to their church. He says, this is a relatively affluent church, and we need to be reminded ourselves that our faith expresses itself in active concern for the marginalized of society. Maybe Jesus was too, or at least so identified with them, that we should allow the image to confront us. Jesus wants to invite everybody, and he certainly wants to invite those without power, those who've been pushed to the side, or the little children who are powerless in this society. Bring them to me. And Jesus does more than that in this passage. It's not just that he says, bring them. It's not even that he puts them on his lap and blesses them and does all that. It's, he, he comes to the next part of it, and I, he holds them up more or less and says, look, anybody that's going to enter the kingdom of God needs to be like these ones. You need to enter the kingdom like this. And sometimes if you've ever heard, like particularly as a preacher, there are times that I, when I cringe really hard hearing other preachers. If you've ever heard a preacher talk about this being a childish faith, I want you to know I cringe. God gives us brains. He wants us to love, love him with our mind, our mind, our body, and our spirit. And he gives us our mind. So I don't think this passage is saying, I want you to come to me and inherit the kingdom as somebody who's naive, who sets your brain aside or does any of that. That's not what I think it is. But it's maybe about the humility that sometimes that we see that they don't want the limelight the same way adults do. Or certainly it's about trust. And I think that's probably the biggest part of it, that Jesus is holding up and saying, trust like a child. Maybe that means a couple things. One is maybe to be submissive to God's authority and to be in that place where that's enough. Keep our minds engaged, keep asking the questions, keep praying, keep doing all that, but to have a trust in God's authority. One of the uh, Christian writers that I love from times gone by is Corey Ten Boom. Um, she's got so many wonderful things. If you don't know her, she wrote this one book called The Hiding Place. She was a teenager during World War II. Their family had to hide. Ultimately, they got put in a concentration camp. All the family dies. Sister dies. She's the one who lives. She becomes an evangelist afterwards. And then part of that, she writes this book, The, the Hiding Place. In The Hiding Place, she tells this story before the war starts. She's talking about her dad. And she tells this story about how on this particular day, when she's like 10 or 12, or 10 or 11 or 12, somewhere in that range, um, she's getting on a train to go with her dad on a trip. And she's recently encountered through some reading some poetry, something about sexual sin. And she turns to her dad and says to him, what is sexual sin? And um, her dad, this is the part she writes in the book. I'm just gonna read part of The Hiding Place. She says, he turned to look at me as he always did when answering a question. But to my, my surprise, he said nothing. As he stood up, he lifted his suitcase from the rack overhead and he set it on the floor. Will you carry it off the train, Corey? He asked. I stood up and tugged at it. It was crammed with watches and spare parts he'd purchased that morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said. And it would be a pretty poor father who would ask this little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you're older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. I was satisfied. I was more than satisfied. Wonderfully at peace. 
There were answers to this and all my hard questions. For now, I was content to leave them in my father's keeping. That's trust. And I think I've heard somebody say that part of our interaction with God is that we, we learn to love and trust God for the things that we know and understand so that we can trust him on the things that we don't. And that's what she's doing here. And I think that's the ultimate element of what a part of what this means with trust. And I think there are other aspects um, to how we do this as well, that, that to come to the kingdom of God like a child may also mean our, our belief in the goodness of others. I mean, children don't know. They see the best in other people. We have to teach stranger danger because they're so welcoming and they assume the good of others. Maybe that's what the kingdom of God is like. All these different ways that, that we engage that way. Or maybe it's because children don't hold grudges and have short memories about wrongs. All these different things we might begin to think about what does it mean that Jesus holds up this child and, and says to the disciples, this is like what, the way you need to be to inherit the kingdom of God. I think when we look at it, we can think about their humility, their trust, their ability to see the goodness in others, um, their, their ability to let go of the hurts. Maybe these are all the things that are about inheriting the kingdom of God. I want to um, wrap up the sermon then by just thinking for a moment and pausing as we think about during this stewardship season about maybe how this relates to stewardship. And I think part of this uh, may be that when we think about stewardship and, and we're praying about what we're going to give in support of ministry and the gospel being spread and the helping the marginal, all the stuff we do, all the, out, all the different things we do in the church we've been talking about for the last month and a half. What keeps us from really leaning into that? I think a lot of times it's fear. We're, are we going to have enough? How's it all going to work out? And the antidote to that is trust. And so on a day like this, when we, we hear these passages and we think about the, these children and their trust, it's a reminder to us that it doesn't matter how much money you have, you're never going to have the sense of complete security. Because even if you've got all your physical needs met for the rest of your life, your health can go like that. And all these kinds of things. Like every day we're called to have a severe trust in God. And it's just a reminder that we carry that into as we pray about what we give and how we're going to live. We want to go deeper with God. We've got to surrender. We've got to surrender, let go of that stuff and trust him. And maybe it's a call um, as we do that. I think the final thing and word I want to end with where I started. I'm convinced the more we surrender, the more we embrace God's kingdom the way these children do, the more we experience God's joy. If we want to have more of that joy of the children coming through the gate at Disney World, I think the more we surrender to God, the more we experience God's spirit dwelling in us, the more we'll have joy that goes beyond our circumstances and our encounters in life. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us. You call us on a journey. And Lord, in, uh, the, the world can beat us up in different ways, but we ask that you would help us to be like these children coming to you that not only we would come with trust and ability to come to you that way and to see goodness in others, but that we too, in our figurative sense, may um, experience your embrace, um, your love, and your blessing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.